Second Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, for you that are our guests, we've been in a study, uh, a 10-week study of the New Testament book of Second Thessalonians, and we bring this study uh, to a conclusion uh, today. Now, I will share with you with the fact that we've had baptism and so many other special elements and Lord's Supper in just a moment. I will be very, very brief with the message this morning. We'll uh, move through this material very, very quickly. Uh, I trust you picked up a copy of your uh, sermon notes, and although it may uh, be a little briefer than normal, I trust it will be just as uh, meaningful and impactful uh, in your life. We've seen that chapter 3 evolves around uh, the Word of God, and uh, last week we looked at verses 1 through 5 that talked about glorifying God's Word by spreading God's Word, and how as believers we have been given the task Uh, to take the message of Christ uh, to a lost world. The church is the body of Christ. The church isn't these buildings, not the brick and the mortar. The church is you and I. And as the body of Christ, we are to walk as Jesus walked. Uh, We're to know His life formed in us to be displayed through us. We live, we exist as a church to extend Christ's presence to this community, to express the lovely character of Jesus Christ, and to demonstrate His power. And what a wonderful opportunity we will have to do that uh, this week through our love indeed emphasis as we uh, show the love of Christ to the community. And then, of course, in November through the My Hope evangelistic campaign that we're participating in with the Billy Graham uh, Association. But this morning, we want to look at the concluding verses of this uh, chapter, uh, beginning at verse uh, 6. And here the focus is on glorifying God's Word by obeying it, glorifying God's Word by obeying it. So just uh, follow along in your sermon notes, and uh, we'll just walk through uh, these points. And we trust it to help you get a good handle on this portion of Scripture. And again, uh, you'll see its application to your life. First, look there in your notes at the key words, the key words. There's the repetition in this entire section of the verbs command and obey, uh, which were actually military terms in the Greek text. In other words, the terms that Paul uses for command and obey were military terms in the Greek text, and they literally referred to orders that were handed down by a superior officer to his men. Uh, For example, look at verse Six, he says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. Look at verse 12. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. And if anyone does not obey our instruction... And that's one of the most striking features about these verses. They literally have a military authoritative tone tone to them. And I think that brings us to the key observation. And that's simply this, that God expects believers to submit to His commands and obey them. Now, that may be very, very simple, but it's very, very important for us never to lose sight of that reality. The moment we decide to follow Christ, The moment we place our faith in Him as our Savior and Lord, there is the expectation that we will follow, like the boys and girls were singing just a moment ago. 
and that as we follow that we will obey, and that God is our Lord. He is our master. He is our commander-in-chief, using that military analogy, and we are to submit to His authority to serve His agenda and to seek His approval. It's not about us. It's about Him. Uh, God is not uh, the means we use to achieve our ends. No, we're God's means to achieve His ends, to achieve His purposes. Now, look at this biblical definition of obedience, and this is one that I have shared many different times from the pulpit, but it's, it's always good to remind ourselves of how the Bible would define obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is. First, doing exactly what I'm told to do. James chapter 1, it says what? Prove yourselves to be what? Doers of God's Word, uh, where we literally build our lives on God's Word. We act on God's Word. We appropriate God's Word. We apply God's, God's Word. But not only doing exactly what I'm told, but when I'm told to do it. I, lo- I love Psalm 119 verse 60, where the psalmist wrote, I will hurry without delay to obey your commands. And again, as I shared, this entire section does have a military authoritative tone about it. And we have a lot of folks here that are in the military. We have our drill sergeant right over here. And I guarantee when Orlando gives an order to those men that he's working with that are underneath him, when he tells them something, what is his expectation? If they're going to just lay around and think about his order, whether or not they're going to do it, uh, they're going to wait five or ten minutes till they feel more like doing what he's at? No. He expects his what? Immediately for them to respond. And it should be the same way in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, out of our love and honor for Him. Now, they fear Orlando, but I trust our motivation is more love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so, I'm doing exactly what I'm told, when I'm told to do it, and this last aspect of the definition is so important, with the right heart attitude. With the right heart attitude. I obey your commandments with all my heart. Uh, We should be driven in our obedience, not out of a sense of duty so much, but out of a sense of what? Delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Seeing our obedience as an opportunity to express our love to Him, to express our worship of Him, that we truly desire to honor and exalt Him because He's worthy of all that we are, of all that we possess. He's worthy of our submission. He's worthy of our obedience. So we're driven again, again, not so much out of a sense of duty and obligation, but out of a sense of delight that is driven uh, out of our motivation of experiencing His love for us as we reciprocate with our love for him. Now, look at the key issue as we move on. The key issue in these verses is the last of the three issues that were disturbing the peace of the church. Now, for those of you that have been in this study from the beginning, you know that the book of Second Thessalonians evolves around three issues that were literally threatening uh, the peace and the life of this church. In chapter 1, Paul dealt with the first issue, which was the issue of persecution. Uh, They were right in the fires of persecution. And uh, Paul was very, very concerned that in the midst of that persecution that they would not plunge into disillusionment or disappointment as a result of the pain of their adversity, but they would stand firm for Jesus Christ, holding on to the Word of God, seeing their persecution 
also is an opportunity to demonstrate their love and their worship of Him. In chapter 2, he dealt with uh, some false teaching concerning the end times, and uh, we looked at that over the last several weeks. And here in chapter 3, the issue is what we could call the idlers or the loafers who were refusing to work. Now, we're not told specifically in uh, the book, but we believe their motivation was a misunderstanding of the end times. Uh, They had sort of so embraced uh, the uh, imminency of Christ's return that they just thought, well, we'll just stop working and we'll just wait till he gets back. And uh, so they just they just stopped working, and they just they just retreated, and they were uh, loafers. They were they were literally feeding off the rest of the church uh, family. And so in these verses, in this section, uh, Paul confronts this group within the church that had uh, developed this very very poor work ethic that was damaging the testimony of the church and uh, also threatening the harmony of the church. Look at uh, verses ten and eleven. You see that. Therefore, even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. Pretty simple, isn't it? But pretty profound. Something we could use today, right? Uh, for we hear that some among you are not leading, uh, are, are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. So, that's the key issue in these verses. This group of individuals within the church, probably a small group, uh, but uh, large enough to make a a significant negative impact on the church where they had just uh, stopped working. And uh, they were feeding off the church, totally dependent upon the church. They had become a drain on the church. Uh, With all their idle time, they had become busybodies, which is another word for what? Gossip. And uh, they, they were threatening, again, the unity, the harmony of the church, and they were bringing division. And then in the rest of the uh, chapter, you basically see the key incentives to obey. And just walk through these quickly with me. First is the threat of church discipline, the threat of church discipline. Look at verse 6. It says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. Now, again, think about this. The fact that Paul threatens church discipline, that if you persist in being disobedient on this point, that the church body is going to, to, to mark you, and they're going to sort of stand aloof, in other words, in terms of uh, intimate fellowship with you, it tells us that what? obedience was expected. And there were consequences if you persisted in disobedience. It's amazing how far in our day and age we have gotten away from church discipline. Uh, But it is something that is talked about very often in the Scriptures. And, And as we're going to see, the motive is always love. The motive is always restoration, reconciliation. But also the motive is to maintain the purity and the holiness of the church. But there was not only the threat of church discipline, uh, another key incentive to obey was the example of the church leaders. Now, look with me and look in your Bibles. Uh, in your sermon notes, I've just uh, uh, printed there a, just a brief portion of verses 7, 8, and 9 uh, to give you the gist. But let's look at, the, uh, at the, those verses in their entirety. Verse 7, for you yourselves know 
how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. That's what he's accusing this group of doing. He said, we didn't act that way, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Remember, uh, we looked in uh, our very first message on Second Thessalonians about the history of the church. And when uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy went into Thessalonica, they lived with a man by the name of Jason. And that's what he's referring to. He said, when Jason took us into his home, we, didn't, we, we weren't loafers. Uh, you know, we, we paid uh, for being able to lodge there with Jason. We paid for what he provided uh, for us. And then he goes on and he says, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we did not have the, the right to do this. In other words, as apostles, he said, we had the right to expect uh, you uh, to provide us support. A laborer, the Bible says, is worthy of his hire. But he said, we wanted to be exemplary examples to you concerning a work ethic. We didn't want anyone to question that our motive would just be materialistic gain, that we had a true love and concern for you. So he said, you know, we didn't live an undisciplined life. We didn't didn't, uh, uh, freeload on people. We paid for what we received. We worked night and day to be able to, uh, to earn a wage. And then he says, but in order to offer ourselves as a model... For you, uh, that, uh, that you might follow our example. So that's another incentive. Paul said, Look at us. We gave you an example worth following. And of course, every leader in the church should be able to say, as Paul says here, as Paul said in the book of Philippians, Look at me. In Philippians, he says, Look at me. He says, Practice the things I do, and what? The God of peace will be with you. So every leader, not that he's perfect, uh, no leader is, and I'll be the first to admit, I am not perfect. All you got to do is ask my wife, any of my children, and they'll be glad to share with you my faults and my weaknesses and my, my frailties, all my character deficiencies, sins, faults. You just list, list them all. Uh, but a leader should be honest. A leader should be transparent about those failures and faults. And a leader should step to the plate through the grace and empowerment of God and provide the church an example worth following. Look at the uh, next incentive, and that is simply the Christian work ethic. Look at verse 10. He says, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone does not work, neither let him eat. You know, I wish I had time to uh, amplify on this, but on this point, uh, I went to the book of Proverbs, uh, and the book of Proverbs has so much to say about not only a good work ethic, but what happens when you have a poor work ethic. And let me just run through this real quickly with you. At some other point, I'll put this in print because I think you would appreciate this, maybe through our weekly publication, The, the Edge, or some other point. I'm not, I don't have time to give you the actual references, but I thought you would appreciate this. In the book of Proverbs, it emphasizes four different kinds of workers. It talks about the sluggard, the deceiver, the greedy, and then the diligent, the, the, the positive worker. And as I went through these verses in Proverbs, notice what I found. This is how Proverbs decide, uh, describes the, the, the sluggard, lazy and unorganized, idle and restless, wasteful and destructive, and the fact that 
That person is a quitter, and they become defensive at work when they're challenged about their work ethic. Then the deceiver, Proverbs says, appears at ease, but really is empty, uh, that they initially have pleasure through their deception in earning wages, but a bitter end in reality. And then the other interesting thing it, it highlights about the deceiver is that they have no loyalty at all, that they're thinking only of self and what they can gain instead of what they can give. The greedy talks about them trying to find security in money, that they're extremely selfish. And then this is interesting, Proverbs 28 talks about in the end, they're going to get burned. And then this is what it says about a diligent worker. And this is, this is what we're talking about in terms of a Christian work ethic. It says they are disciplined and determined, Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 8. It says that their needs will be met, their basic fundamental needs will be met uh, through their good work ethic, Proverbs 12, 11. It says that promo- promotions and raises will come because of their diligence, Proverbs 12, 24. It talks about the fact that they'll have inner satisfaction in their work, Proverbs 12, 27 and 13, 4. And then it talks about the fact that they will gain a, re- a wide reputation uh, for doing skilled work, skilled labor, Proverbs 22, uh, 29. So, I trust that uh, none of us here will fall into that category of the sluggard or the deceiver or the greedy, but that we'll be one of those that would be considered, what, a diligent worker. And that in the eyes of our uh, employers, that they look with favor upon us because of the due diligence that we give in uh, providing uh, a, a good work, diligent work, uh, hard work. And, and notice also when Paul says, if anyone does not work uh, neither let him eat. I think we all understand. It's saying if anyone who has the ability to work is unwilling to work. We're not talking about those that are disabled. We're not talking about those that are truly needy, that do not have the ability to earn an income. Yes, we're to come along their side, and we're to show compassion uh, to those. And, you know, it's even interesting in the uh, in the Old Testament, you know, I think we all know, and I just don't have time to develop it, but I don't need to develop it because you all see it. You know, we have developed an entitlement society today, and it's very, very tragic. And it's interesting in the Old Testament how even the, the true poor, they, they were provided for compassionately. But even there, if you're familiar with the Scriptures, when they would do harvest, they had to leave the gleanings, what, on the field. And that would be left for what? The poor. But the poor had to what? They had to go collect it. They had, they had to go get it. And so, again, uh, understand, we're not talking about those that do not have the ability, uh, those that are in a uh, unique time of crisis where we need to come along this side. We're talking about those, and that's what this passage is talking about, those who, would be, who are able but are just not willing to work and are being loafers, idlers, and creating all sorts of problems. The other incentive is the harmony of the church, verses 11, 12, and 13. He says, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. It's very interesting in the Greek text. There's literally a play on words. Uh, if, I, if I could put it more accurately into the uh, English text where there'd be this, that same play would be there. there they're not busy at all, uh, but acting like busybodies. There's that, that, that play. They're not busy at all, but they're busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ 
to work. That's the command. We're giving you an order uh, on the authority of Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. But it's for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. And so, one of the incentives is the harmony of the church. These folks were disturbing the peace of the church. They had so much time on their hands that they were getting into everyone's business. They were meddling into the affairs of everyone else, being, becoming gossips, busybodies, and creating all sorts of dissension and disharmony. Another, look at the last two, and I'll put these together and then just say some things about them because they both relate to discipline. First, there's the incentive of the shame of disobedience, verse 14. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. So it's talking about you remove fellowship from that individual. You don't become intimately involved. But look at verse 6, which provides the good balance, the love of the church family. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So, yes, you're not to associate with him. There's, there's a consequence if they're going to persist in their disobedience. But you're still to love them. You're to admonish them as a brother. You're to admonish them as a member of the family. And let me just very, very quickly, just, just from these two verses right here, I, I think we can make five observations about church discipline. First, the need for discipline. Notice, and it's not only true here, but it's true everywhere in the New Testament that talks about discipline within the church. We're not talking about disciplining people for trivial, small matters. Every place where you see church discipline is talking about public sin that is deliberate, and people are persisting in that sin. In other words, there's an unwillingness to repent, and, and because of that unwillingness to repent, because their sin is public and deliberate, It's bringing shame. It's discrediting the name of Christ. It's discrediting the testimony of the church. So whenever there is public, deliberate, persistent sin, that needs to be challenged in any and every church because of what's on the line. But look at the nature of the discipline. We see here, it's it's not to fellowship with the individual. Not, not to get intimately. In other words, I, I think it's just very simple. I don't think we need to make this complicated. They're saying if they're going to persist in their sin, if they're going to refuse to repent, well, the issue then is not fellowship any longer. The issue is repentance. And you're, just, you're, you're just still to go after them. You should be motivated by love to, to, to pursue them aggressively and intensely and often, but, but the focus needs to be that they need to turn from their sin and return to Jesus as their first love and be restored uh, to enjoying full fellowship with the church. Look at the responsibility of administering discipline. This is very interesting. He's not writing to the elders. He's writing to the congregation. And the leaders of the church may initiate the discipline, but this is something that's to be shared, what, with the whole entire congregation that they're to get involved in and sense sense a responsibility for. Look at the spirit in which the discipline is administered. We've already pointed this out. It's friendly, not hostile. It says admonish them like a brother, their family. The the goal is restoration, and that gets us to that fifth thing, the purpose of discipline. It's, It's positive. It's constructive. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the whole goal is to restore. The whole goal is to reconcile. 
It's not to turn somebody away. It's to restore them uh, for their good and for the greater glory of God. So we glorify God's Word by obeying God's Word, and I pray that God will give us the grace, the empowerment here at Edgewood Baptist Church uh, to be known as those that are, are obedient, that where we do exactly what He says right here, when He tells us to do it, but also with the right attitude, out of a motivation of uh, a de- delight rather than duty, uh, motivation of, of love. Father, thank You for this, uh, I trust, very simple but very practical uh, word from, uh, from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 as uh, we conclude this study. Father, I pray that You would uh, give us a love uh, for Your Word. I even think of uh, David, uh, again, back in uh, Psalm 119, uh, where he expressed not only his love for You, but his love for the Word of God. He talks about lifting his hands to You, but not only lifting his hands to You, but lifting his hands to Your commandments and, and delighting in Your commandments more than gold itself, more than riches and uh, realizing that it's in building our lives on the Word of God uh, that we find true fulfillment, we find true joy, we find true satisfaction, and we live a life honoring You where Jesus Christ is exalted. So, Father, I pray here at Edgewood Baptist Church, uh, You would be so much the power at work in us uh, that we would become known as a people of obedience, uh, but a people that obey out of a heart of love that our obedience is, a, is simply a kiss for you, uh, an act of worship uh, that would bring you great honor, that would bring you great delight, uh, even as a parent would find the delight in a child that's being obedient uh, with the right heart attitude. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.